So if you haven't already and you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to just go ahead and turn to Ezra 3. We're going to continue on this morning. Before the Lord called me into ministry, I worked in a cabinet shop. My dad is a cabinet maker in Greenville, and uh, I met Joni in college and knew that I wanted to marry her. And dad said, well, son, you better get a job. And so I went and found a cabinet shop here in town, and that's what I did until we went overseas. And there was an old guy that I worked with. He uh, it was pretty rough around the edges, but the man knew how to make cabinets. He'd been making cabinets for a long time, and one day he saw me fumbling around trying to figure out how to build this uh, cabinet. And I remember he came over to me and he said, you need to cut your last piece before you cut your first piece. I remember thinking, what in the world are you saying? Like, what does that even mean? Cut your last piece before you cut your first piece. Like, how, how am I supposed to... And again, and again, and again, he would tell me that. When he'd see that I was struggling, he'd say, you need to cut your last piece before you cut your first piece. Now, eventually I realized what this old guy was trying to tell me. He was trying to teach me the importance of planning before beginning a project. You see, if you're going to cut your last piece before you cut your first piece, it means you've thought through all the steps that are involved. And so when you start the project, you don't get lost in the process. And so I know what my friend was telling me. Cut your last piece before you cut your first piece. In Ezra 3, we see the rebuilding project that we've been talking about for the last two weeks. We see it actually begin. The project, however, does not begin haphazardly or chaotically. It begins purposefully. It begins by considering the last cut before the first cut. The rebuilding project will involve building materials, craftsmen, and assembling. But the rebuilding of the temple was about worshiping God. That was the end goal of this building project. And so in Ezra 3, the rebuilding project begins with sacrifices and feasts before construction. You might say it starts with worship before wood. By starting with worship, these exiles tell us what is most important. It's easy to focus on the mission in front of us, to get so bogged down with the day-to-day mundane responsibilities that we forget the goal. We forget where we're going. We forget the last cut. And so by beginning with worship, we're told again of the biblical truth. That God's mission advances through the white-hot, self-sacrificing, God-exalting, unified worship of His people. So if you and I this morning want to be about advancing God's kingdom, then we're going to strive to worship God truly. Because that's how God's mission advances, is through the worship of His people. And so this morning, I want us to see first that true worship is unifying. True worship is unifying. This is what we read in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So we're told that they gather in Jerusalem as one man, but they come in the seventh month. 
And we'll see in just a moment that the seventh month was one of the most important months in the life of an Israelite. But first, we're told that they gathered as one man. Not thousands of men and and thousands of women, the old men, the young men, the old women, the young women, the servants. We're told they gathered as one man. And this is hard for us in our Western, individualistic, social media loving age. We're not told about the names of the people. We're told that they gathered as one man. It's even harder to comprehend when you think about how many people made this journey, how many people we're talking about. Look back in Ezra chapter 2, verse 64. We read that the whole assembly together was 42,360. You include the servants and you're about 50,000 people. 50,000 people gathered as one man. 50,000 people made the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. A thousand mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's the distance between Columbia and Texas. You ever walked a thousand miles? Most of us get pretty grumpy when we have to walk one mile. Yet these 50,000 people walked a thousand miles from Babylon to Jerusalem and then they settled in their towns and then they gathered as one man. This is an astounding fact. They made the trek, then they settled in their homes and then they gathered as one man. Joni and I just bought a home. And resettling into a home is a recipe for frustration. It is a ticking time bomb for an argument to erupt. It is not the path to unity. It is the path to disagreement. (laughs) Our home needed a little bit of renovation. Not only is settling into a home stressful, renovating a home is stressful. A thousand decisions are involved in that. What color should this wall be? Green. No, I think it should be white. That'll simplify things, I thought. Fine, let's go to the paint store. We'll pick out a white. Little did I know that there are thousands of white paints, and they're all different. What do you think about this one? No, it's too blue. Blue and white, what? Okay, what about this one? No, it's too yellow. That's just the paint. That's not the floor. That's not the windows. Friends, settling into a home is stressful. And yet we're told that these 50,000 people made the thousand mile journey, settled, and then they gathered as one man. This defies human ingenuity. This is the unity that only the Holy Spirit of God can work in the life of His people. In chapter 1, we're told that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to issue this proclamation. We're also told that God stirred up within the spirit of the exiles to return. And what we're seeing as they gather in one man is the fruit of what God does in the life of his people when his spirit gets a hold of their heart. He brings them together so that it's not individual names. It's not 
individual people and personalities, but it's, it's one man. What we see here is a snapshot of what we see even clearer in the New Testament. There is one church. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Notice Paul doesn't say, go get the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't say, you manufacture the unity of the Spirit. He says, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Friends, this is the work that Christ accomplished on the cross, is to unite all of His people into one body. Through the one Spirit, through the one Lord and the one Father. True worship is unifying. True worship is unifying. So I ask, do you find yourself this morning praying for this kind of unity? Do you find yourself praying that God would demonstrate the unity of His people now? Are you concerned about the disunity that you see on social media, on the news? Are you concerned about the disunity that you hear in conversation, particularly amongst God's people? Are you yourself personally pursuing unity? Friends, disunity hinders our worship. There's a reason why Peter exhorted husbands to love their wives in a Christ-like way. He says, so that their prayers wouldn't be hindered. Disunity in our relationship hinders our worship. So we see that God gathers His people as one man. He unites them. And so may we be a people who pray for this kind of unity to be true in our body, in this city, in this state, in this nation. And we pray for God to stir up in the hearts of His people. You see, true worship is unifying because true worship is God-exalting. As God's people lift up His praises, they're reminded that it is by grace that they themselves lift up their voices. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So true worship is unifying and God-exalting. That's the second thing we'll see this morning. True worship is God-exalting. Notice the very first thing that they begin to do as they are gathered in Jerusalem. They don't just rush to the foundation of the temple. They don't just rush into building the temple because they're thinking about their last cut before their first cut. They're remembering that the temple is to be a place of worship. So why wait to make the temple a place of worship? Let's just start there. And that's what they do. They rebuild the altar. They rebuild the altar And notice how they build it. Look at verse 2. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written. 
and the law of Moses, the man of God. And you'll see in verse 4, they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written. That's the refrain of this first part of the building project. They rebuild the altar. They institute the sacrifices as it is written. The foundation upon which they want to build or rebuild is the Word of God. They're not going to rest on their own inventions. They're going back to the tried and true written Word of God in their worship. This is exactly what David did before Solomon ever built the temple. David built an altar and then the temple came. That's the same pattern we see here. The altar comes first, then the temple. These exiles are concerned with true worship and exalting God's name. It's interesting that they build the altar because if you'll flip over in Ezra chapter 4, look at Ezra chapter 4 verse 2. The they, beginning in verse 2, that's the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the day that Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And so there is likely already an altar in Jerusalem where the exiles are rebuilding. These enemies, these adversaries of Israel, they they want to just kind of join into the program. And they say, well, look, there's no need for you to rebuild this altar. We've got a good one here. Still in use. We're still using it. It's actually, we haven't stopped ever since we've been here. We've been using it. We sacrificed to your God. We'll sacrifice to someone else's. It doesn't matter. Don't waste your time. The exiles are concerned to exalt the name of God and God alone. They rebuild the altar because they will not mix their worship with that of the nations. They will not worship God on an altar that has been polluted with false idols. And so they rebuild the altar as it is written, not using tools and and, and, and fine carved stones, They use field stones as it is written. That's how Moses instructed it to be done. That's how David did it. That's how they're doing it. And then we see that they begin to keep the Feast of Booths as it is written. Again, we saw in verse 1 that the seventh month is highlighted. And the seventh month is the month of Tashiri. And that's the month in the the Hebrew calendar that that fell sometime between September and October. And actually today, tonight, will begin the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. So tonight we will begin, if you're following the Jewish calendar, to enter this seventh month. And this seventh month is a special month in the Israelite calendar. It may be the, the most holy month. Because in Numbers chapter 29... God prescribed three feasts that the Israelites were supposed to observe in the seventh month. The first feast was the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. And so the Feast of Trumpets celebrated the end of the agricultural year. 
and effectively ushered in a new year. So the Feast of Trumpets was the, the New Year celebration for the Israelites. And so they held this feast, the Feast of Trumpets, where they celebrated God's provision to them in that past year. They celebrated God's faithfulness as they took time out of their year to pause and consider all that God had done for them. Now think about these exiles. For the first time in 70 years, they're back in Jerusalem. And the seventh month comes around. And they're able to look back and see God's faithfulness. Not just in that past year, but in God preserving them through their exile. Being faithful to bring them back. And so that's the first feast in the seventh month. The Feast of Trumpets. The second feast was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is exactly what you think it is. It's a feast where they make the atoning sacrifice for their sins. And they remember how God brought them out of Israel. How the the blood was over the door and the angel went past their door. The Day of Atonement. So Israel's year ended with looking back at God's faithfulness and remembering their need for atonement. That their sins hindered their fellowship with God and they needed God to atone for their sin. So you've got the Feast of Trumpets, you've got the Day of Atonement, and then you've got the Feast of Booths. All of this is within the seventh month. The Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, was a feast where the Israelites would live in these pop-up tents for seven days, reminding them of when God brought them out of Egypt, how they wandered in the wilderness, and how God provided for them in their mobile community. The Feast of Booths was the most extravagant of these three festivals. Over the course of 70 days, there would be 71 bulls that would be offered. It was a repeated day after day feast. And of course, it was reminding Israel that God had been faithful to them. God had atoned for their sin. And now they were able to feast with the Lord. They were able to commune with Him. And so they set up the altar and they begin to re-observe these feasts. They begin to make these sacrifices. And you see, they begin to reorient their lives around God and His mighty acts of redemption. They're no longer on Babylon's time. They're not following Babylon's calendar, dependent on their gods. They're following the Lord's time. They're remembering the Lord's works of redemption in their midst. Their lives are beginning to be oriented again around God as they exalt His name by keeping the feast, by making the sacrifices. Beloved, I hope you know that our worship isn't limited to Jerusalem. Jesus is the true temple. John 1, 1, or John 1, 14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt could be translated tabernacled among us. 
Jesus is the true temple of God who came to dwell with his people. We don't go to Jerusalem to worship. We go to Jesus to worship. John says that Jesus, and in Jesus we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We don't come to Jerusalem to worship. We come to Jesus. And we have no need for the repeated sacrifices that these exiles are making. Because Jesus is our high priest. He has offered Himself once and for all for sins. And so this is why Paul in in Romans 12 says that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Because there's no need anymore for another dead sacrifice. Jesus has paid our penalty. He has offered himself. And so now we offer ourselves to God as, as a living sacrifice. And Paul says that's our spiritual worship. So just as the exiles were concerned about rightly worshiping God, rightly exalting His name alone, so we are as well. We are concerned to truly worship God. And our worship is spiritual, offering ourselves as living sacrifices. And so the question I have for us is, are you taking full advantage of this greater opportunity? Are you making use of the advantage that you have in worship? You see, the exiles, they kept the major feast, the Feast of Booths. But we're also told that day and night they kept the sacrifices going. Their worship wasn't just dependent on the big days. You know, the important days in the calendar. Day and night, day and night, day and night. They made their sacrifices Again, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. So do you find yourself worshiping God day and night, day and night, day and night, rejoicing in the fact that you don't have to make sacrifices? Christ has done that for you. Or do you find yourself just waiting till Sunday if you can make it? Friends, true worship is God exalting on Sunday And every other day, morning and evening, morning and evening. It's only after rebuilding the altar that the exiles begin construction on the temple. And as with any building project, it's emotional. It involves the whole person. Their sweat and their songs. Their hard work and their hearts. Their effort and their emotions. True worship is unifying, God-exalting, and heartfelt. True worship is heartfelt. And this is what we see as the chapter comes to a close. In verse 7, they sacrifice. They, They give of their own resources and what's been given to them by Cyrus to fund this project. And then we see that the project begins through the skillful and humble Uh, delegation of the work. The text doesn't focus on Zerubbabel or Jeshua. Yes, they are leaders, but the work is done by the people. And so they organize themselves and they acquire the materials that they need to build. And 
the building project commences. It commences in the second month. Again, it's interesting that the second month is when Solomon began his temple. And so once again, we're confronted with God is behind this work of redemption here. And these exiles are interested in laying the foundation on the tried and true word of God. And so just like Solomon, they get their supplies from Tyre and Joppa. And the building happens through the skillful oversight of the leaders. And then we're told in verse 10 that when the foundation is laid, the priests in their vestments come forward with trumpets. The Levites and the sons of Asaph come with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David. You see, this is what the temple is all about. This is why the actual construction of the temple doesn't get a ton of space. is because the bigger concern is that these exiles now are worshiping. This is why they sweated. This is why they worked the long nights. So that with the foundation laid, they can begin to praise the Lord. And they sing, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. You may have picked up, our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 100. This line, this song that they sang is in Psalm 100. And also in a lot of other psalms later in the book of Psalms. Psalm 100 was probably written in exile or from the perspective of exile. And yet here are these exiles praising the Lord for He's good. Praising the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. And you can hear their thoughts. And we knew this song was true while we were in exile. We knew it in our minds, but now we see it with our eyes. And we feel it in our hearts. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love is His covenantal love. It's the love which He has vowed to keep. Much like a husband vows to love his wife on their wedding day. So the Lord has vowed to love His people. At the beginning of exile, they couldn't see this love. They just saw destruction. And yet on the other side, they've caught a glimpse of God's purposes. And they're singing, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. They can't help but sing. Your worship is incomplete until it overflows into praise. But we read in verse 12 that not everybody shouted with praise. Not everybody shouted with rejoicing. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice. There's a group of people that made the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem with high hopes, great expectations of what the Lord might be doing. You see, 
They didn't have to be told about the former glory of Jerusalem. They didn't have to have their parents tell them of the grandeur of Solomon's temple. They remember it. They saw it. They remember what it was like to see Jerusalem in its heyday. To walk into the temple and and see the the reflection of the gold. And to smell the, the sacrifices. And so they come with eager expectation. And they see the foundation of this temple. And they weep. They weep. This isn't a mental game. This isn't just another building. Their hearts were engaged in this. And this is the emotional tension between what you think should be and what God says is. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in that place. Disappointed between what you think should be and what God says is. That's exactly where these old men found themselves. They were disappointed with this new temple. For all its similarities to the old and for all the clear signs that God was behind this effort, all they could see was a smaller temple, a less glorious temple. You see, they thought the temple should be a certain way. God had different plans. These old men, they didn't cut their last piece before their first. So as construction gets underway, they get lost in the details. They forgot the end goal. They forgot the final destination. They forgot that the temple was not about them. The temple is about God and God's glory. You see, they thought the temple was to be their crowning jewel. It was to be the thing that made the other nations look at them in awe and wonder. You see how good God is to His people? God didn't give these old men what they wanted because God knew if He rebuilt the temple exactly like the first one, the same result would happen. Israel would become puffed up and proud and conceited. And God would once again have to enact judgment on His people. God loves His people so much that He will not give them the things that are ultimately harmful for them. And sometimes that creates a tension between what we think should be and what God says is. These men wanted to say, behold our temple. And God wanted them to say, behold our God. And so God's plans prevailed in the temple. You see, God works in such a way as to only, for only Him to get glory. And that actually is what we want. We actually desire more than anything for God to be glorified, not for us to be glorified. 
We actually don't want people to look at us and say, wow, they are so great. We want people to look at us and say, man, your God must be awesome. Your Savior must be spectacular. This is the last piece in the building project. And these old men, they didn't cut the last piece before they cut their first piece. Though they didn't see it, they were there. They continued to gather for worship. Disappointment is not the final word in this story. We're told that, yes, there were many who wept, but there were also many who shouted aloud for joy. They shouted for joy because they realized that God was, in fact, faithful to His promises. God did not promise to restore the exact imprint of Solomon's temple, but God did promise to bring His people back and to restore them. And God was faithful to that promise. He was faithful to His people And so there were many there in the midst that that's what they saw. They were overwhelmed with joy at God's goodness to them. They were overjoyed that sacrifices were being made, that that God was being exalted, that their lives were shaped day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year around God's works in history. And so they begin to shout with praise because true worship is heartfelt. True worship is not empty emotionalism. True worship engages the mind. It's built on the foundation of truth of God's word. But true worship engages the mind in order to stir the heart. It affects us. It grips us. Christianity is not a mental game. James says that even the demons believe. Mental assent won't get you into heaven. Getting a perfect score in Bible trivia won't save your soul. Only Christ will. You see, the gospel, it it comes to our minds, but it, it gets down to our heart. It penetrates our heart. And so you must receive Christ by faith, by trusting Him in your heart, believing that Christ died for you. And so in verse 13 we read the shout of joy. It was was so loud that the nations heard their shouts of praise. The shout of praise was so loud that they couldn't distinguish between the crying and the shouting. This is the beauty of gathering for worship. When we find ourselves in that tension between the disappointment of of what we think should be and what God says is, and we gather with other brothers and sisters who are in a different place, and we come together and we lift up our voices through the tears and through the joys, what is heard outside is a shout of praise. It put the nations on notice. It put the peoples of the lands that were striking fear of them, it it put fear in their heart and said, your gods are no gods. Our God is the true God. And we gather to worship Him. In 
John Piper says, when the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's truth, the light of mission will shine to the darkest peoples on earth. When the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, the light of mission will shine to the darkest peoples on earth. That's a picture of what's happening here. The the flame of worship is burning again in Jerusalem and the nations hear it. Friends, if that was true for Israel, whose worship was confined to Jerusalem, how much more is it true for us whose worship is confound to Jesus? This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 10. He says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul doesn't say that through the church one day the manifold wisdom of God will be made known. He says, no, now, now through the church, as the church gathers to declare His praise, the demons are put on notice. The demons are told that they have been defeated. You see, our worship It's emotional and it's evangelistic. It is heartfelt. It's heartfelt worship. And so again, I just ask, does your heart burn to worship God? Or do you find yourself just going through the motions? When you go into work, Are you doing all things for the glory of God or just trying to impress your boss? Do you joyfully serve your spouse? Are you just trying to appease them? Do you lovingly listen to your children or do you just want them to go play somewhere else? Friends, when your heart has been moved by the gospel, when you realize that you were dead in your sins, you were far from God, when you realize that there was nothing that you could do to be reconciled to Him, and then when you saw Christ and His offer of forgiveness on the cross, and when you received that by faith, friends, you can't be unaffected by that. Worship is heartfelt. When that happens, when the gospel penetrates your heart, Your whole life becomes a joyous shout of praise. And it continues to be so. But it only continues to be so as we remember our final goal. Our final goal is God's glory. You got to cut your last piece before you cut your first piece. You got to know where you're going and how you're going to get there. God's mission is clear. He's gathering worshipers to Himself. God sent these exiles back to Jerusalem with the clear purpose of rebuilding the temple. The temple was to serve as their center of worship. It was to restore the spiritual life of Israel. The purpose of this project was to unite a diverse group of people. 
And this temple would serve until the true temple, Christ, came. And so the temple was to point people to Jesus. And so as these exiles gathered and their hearts burned within them, the nations would come and see. And so now if you this morning, if you've been stirred up to see the beauty of God through Christ, then gather for worship. Gather with others to lift up the name of God, to exalt Him. Make this your burning passion. And may God be pleased to advance His kingdom through our God-exalting, unified praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, we thank you that you meet us where we are. Father, if we find ourselves disappointed or if we find ourselves overflowing with joy, Father, you meet us in your Son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would bind our wounds, you would convict where we need convicting, Lord, ultimately, we ask that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. Father, that you would fan the flame of our affections for you. Lord, that we might live in such a way as to always point to your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.